listeners, uh, just a small content warning at the start of this episode. Uh, Nate, could you help us out? Yes. This episode may contain content that may trigger some listeners. So please, if, if you do feel you're triggered, please pause or turn off or continue to listen and be kind to yourself. We will be speaking about suicide and violence. Yeah, and that will be um, at different points in the conversation, but not all of it. Yeah. Uh, but if you do feel uh, at all uncomfortable at any point, then you know, feel free to skip the rest of the episode, stop it at any time, and just look forward to another episode coming out soon. Welcome to today's episode of the Arcananth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Rivera. The Arcananth Podcast is the podcast all about human society, human health, human biology, and basically all things human. That is what anthropology is, after all. Today, we are speaking with a new guest who works on such topics, Nathan Tilton. Nate, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, and I'm really happy to be featuring you and, and your work on the show today. But first of all, like, how are you? How are you doing this week? Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, it's a pleasure. I've been a longtime listener. I'm just kind of like fanboying a little bit right now. You know, <laughs> um, it's great. Um, this week, uh, you know, it's, it's a good week. Everything considered, we still are sheltering in place here in California. And, you know, we're trying to make the best of it. We're coming up on 40-something days and we're trying to make the best of it and trying to flatten that curve. Yeah. Um, how long have you lived in California? Has it been like all your life? Uh, for the majority of it. I've lived a, a few years here and there, like uh, with the military. I, I lived a few years, you know, in Iraq or a few years in Afghanistan. I also lived a few years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in different states and, and whatnot. But I've been mostly in California, yes. Yeah. And do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Yes. Yes. And, and this is one that I listen to quite a bit. I also listen to quite a few other uh, ants and uh, archaeology podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's really great stuff on the commute to work or the commute to school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's really nice to hear. I always love uh, hearing that people enjoy podcasts, obviously. <laughs> um, and so uh, you mentioned your commute. Where are you com commuting to? Like, what would you say that your job is at the moment or what you're, what you're doing at the moment? Of course. Um, so I go to school and I also work at UC Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, I am the disability lab manager for the UC Berkeley Disability Lab. And we are actually, we uh, work on different types of technology and we take technology that oftentimes disabled people do not have access to mm -hmm. and we give them access. So we give them that um, agency over their own equipment because oftentimes uh, insurance companies and, and other medical professionals will not allow disabled people to work on their own technology. Even if they were like a, a engineer, a PhD, have a PhD in engineering, they still wouldn't allow them to work on it because of what they would say insurance uh, issues and mm -hmm. they could avoid their warranties, whatever. But essentially, you know, we're trying to give uh, other disabled folks, because I am a disabled person myself, we're mm -hmm. trying to give them agency over their equipment. Yeah. I would also like to take a quick second and do a land acknowledgement and recognize that UC Berkeley and other universities sit on uh, the ancestral lands of the indigenous peoples of the America. Yeah. And has UC Berkeley been um, quite supportive of you and making space of uh, for your lab? Is your lab quite a, a big lab, a medium-sized lab? Uh, we are... A new lab. <laughs> we, mm -hmm. we are a new makerspace. Um, the, uh, I am the lab manager and Professor Karen Nakamura. She is uh, the lab director. She's been a joy to work with. Um, 
And UC Berkeley has been, I would say, pretty good um, about about making sure we have our space. Uh, I mean, of course, there's the bureaucracies we've got to deal with, mm-hmm. the institutional bureaucracies, but that's with anywhere, you, everywhere you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, it's been pretty good and they've been pretty supportive of a lot of it. We've been getting our new equipment um, and we've been trying to set it all up so we can gear up and, and create into a, uh, a new makerspace. We have quite a few really exciting projects mm-hmm. that uh, you know I would love to talk to you about in the future, but we're actually uh, creating them as we speak, and we're we're still in the the planning phases right now, but we've right. just uh, contacted, or we've been in meetings with Uber, we've been in meetings with various uh, different uh, organizations on campus, mm-hmm. and other outside sources uh, that we've been in contact with. So really great stuff uh, we got coming out of our lab uh, in the next few years. It's just right now a lot of it's in the planning stages, mm-hmm. and and it's really really exciting. Yeah, that's really amazing. And and sounds like really important work as well to try and do research that will improve the lives of disabled folks and, you know, implement universal design in different aspects of uh, people's lives, basically. How old or how new exactly is the lab itself? Honestly, we, so, so Karen, so Professor Nakamura, she's been at the university at Cal for the last few years. Um, I got to Cal in 2018. Mm-hmm. And so the, the lab's been around for about three years and I've been there for about two and a half. We, and when I started, um, we actually did not have a lab. It was, we'd have meetings out of coffee shops. We'd have meetings, um, you know, in different areas cause we just didn't have a space yet. And then mm-hmm. finally, once the lab opened up officially, uh, about, about two years ago, mm-hmm. um, about the same time we were able to actually have our space and have our meeting, which was a wonderful thing. And it was it was great. And, and one big thing too is we're actually trying to step away from from universal design because we found that universal design is actually uh, negatively impacted a lot of disabled folks. So what we're actually shooting for now is flexibility hmm. and and being able to take technology and actually make it flex for people instead of making it universal. Because a lot of times it, uh, a lot of companies will aim at designing something universally for disabled folks, mm-hmm. like uh, like the self driving car. And they'll say, oh, well, this is our target population. And then it will pivot over to the able-bodied population. Right. And it's like, but wait, what about us? Right. So that's one reason why we're, we're trying to get away from the, the idea of universal design. We're actually moving towards the idea of flexible mm-hmm. design. And besides like, uh, you know, maybe design that is targeted towards disabled folks versus able folks, you're, you're also going to have great variation in uh, yes. how people are disabled as well. Exactly. And yes, exactly. I can't stress that enough. Like competing disabilities is a huge thing that we contend with. Uh, a good example would be uh, myself and Professor Nakamura. We were at a, a really well-known film festival. She has a service dog. Uh, the service dog was injured on a ramp. Mm-hmm. And because the, the ramp is supposed to be, you know, for folks using um, different accessible desi- devices, but the ramp had grates in it and he got his, his uh, like a nail stuck in the, uh, in the ramp and it, mm-hmm. He got hurt. Mm. And so that's like kind of just an example of, you know, uh, competing disabilities. There's also different things like, uh, like for instance, the, uh, the rumble mats, the tactile mats that you see at the end of uh, some sidewalks Mm -hmm. that can be this mostly for blind or low vision folks. And the problem with that is it, it, it uh, impacts people that have walkers or power chairs or scooters. Mm -hmm. So it's like a lot of times you, we have these competing disabilities because then if you were to, just have curb cuts and not have the rumble strips, then a lot, you know, it creates an issue for 
blind or low vision users. So it's just mm -hmm. one of those things where we have like different competing disabilities. And that's why we try to go with more flexible design versus universal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to to me. Uh, when it comes to sort of assuming the role of a lab manager for the UC Berkeley Disability Lab, take me back to that time when you were first sort of that you, you'd found out that you would be in this role. And how did they make you feel to sort of assume this leadership position? So, you know, assuming leadership position, uh, coming from a military background, it's something I'm, I'm kind of used to. Mm hmm. Uh, because I, I've been uh, a leader in the, in various forms in the military for o well over a decade. And um, so for me, it, it was just kind of a natural thing. In fact, it's, it's one of those things where I have oftentimes I had to step back and try to allow other people to assume this role. But mm. when uh, Professor Nakamura offered me the job, I was stunned and, and blown away. And, mm -hmm. you know, I feel that We've, we've really bonded very well and we make a very dynamic team. Yeah. Um, and we've been able to, it's been a wonderful thing being able to watch this lab grow and these projects grow and, and increase. And, and just the students, whenever we get them, the, the URAP, the undergraduate researchers come in and it's just, you know, they're, they always leave. Like <laughs> for, for being able to see them when they come in to, to when they leave is always just, it's always amazing to see, just to see the growth and the, and the potential succeeding it's just it's always an amazing feeling yeah. and thing to see if you don't mind me asking like what what positions did you serve in the army uh, i'm not really because i uh, haven't grown up in america and i'm not mm -hmm. too familiar with all the different ranks yeah. and i'm sort of curious to know like what what are the different positions that you have held before oh yeah um so i've i've been in all sorts of different positions um i've been you know just from a rifleman which is just basically uh you know, a uh, standard infantryman, mm -hmm. uh, all the way up to my current rank, which I'm preparing to retire at, is a uh, sergeant first class, which mm -hmm. uh, I also, which my job means I'm a, normally a platoon sergeant, which means I'm in charge of, you know, uh, 30 or more people typically, or, uh, but right now I've been, I've been serving as like a senior operations non-commissioned officer, which typically means I work uh, hand in hand with the executive officer of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's mostly what that's been at, but due to my disabilities, uh, I'm being having, I have to retire now, unfortunately, but it's, it's been a great career and I, I feel I'm ready to move mm -hmm. on. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned that, uh, assuming a leadership position sort of came naturally to you. What, what kinds of, um, you know, what kind of discipline does that, uh, translate through like what kinds of skills do you think are actually quite transferable into your you know your role in a disability you lab? know a, a big thing um and and you know this is kind of a polarizing thing i feel for a lot of military folks is like some people feel it's a weakness to listen i feel it's a strength to listen to people mm -hmm. um i feel it's a strength to to listen to subordinates or or listen to your colleagues or listen to your your upper echelon or, or whoever it is and just kind of sit there and listen to their ideas. And mm -hmm. uh, one big thing I've learned is no idea is too small. No idea is they're all valid and they should all be heard out because you never mm -hmm. know what, what type of great information you could be, could be missing. And so I feel that that's something that I adopted in the military. Um, and I feel that's something I use on a daily basis mm -hmm. uh, because I feel that everybody can can contribute. A lot of times in the military, a lot of people feel that, oh, if you are a lower rank, you can't really contribute. Like if you're a private, you don't really have anything to contribute. Right. However, I, I disagree. I feel that regardless of your rank, you always have something to contribute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never inhabited that world, but um, I kind of see it 
in the same way, like with regards to, um, you know, academia mm-hmm. or science communication, doing anthropology and archaeology, it's not just um, principal investigators and professors who um, contribute the most important uh, or, or the only important knowledge to our field. It's uh, really important to value and respect the contributions from our undergraduates and from our uh, contingent staff and from our admin as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I sort of see those things like uh, being paralleled there. Yes. Um, you mentioned that you're also studying. Uh, I'm curious to know like how your studies are going right now and, and what sorts of uh, topics are you looking into at the moment in your undergraduate degree? Of course. Uh, I'm actually getting ready to prepare to graduate from UC Berkeley. Um, I'm, I'm very excited and, uh, you know, just kind of blown away at the moment that that this whole time has has blown by. Uh, I retired from my civilian job uh, back in 2016, and that's actually when I started going back to school. I was a high school dropout, and um, you know I got my GED and I was able to join the military. And I was actually afraid of school for a long time because I, I had dyslexia. And back in and back in the day when I was going to school in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, if you were a brown uh, kid you know, with dyslexia, oftentimes they just stuck you in special ed classes. They didn't know what to do with you. So uh, I often find myself frustrated with, with high school. So I just eventually dropped out. Right. And um, I developed a great fear of school. And after years in the military and, and then retiring from my civilian job in 2016, I decided to go back to school and, and face my fears because I always wanted to work in academia. Mm-hmm. So I started going to community college, taking classes, and, and this led me up to where I'm at my I am at now. Mm-hmm. And it also led me to my research topic. Um, and that was my great focus right now um, is veterans health, specifically the disabling effects of institutions on veterans. Mm. And I feel that this research topic is one that really hasn't been explored and one that is, it's just uh, you know, just an uh, amazing opportunity to be explored. Because at first I was actually looking at like emotional openness and how, how like regional culture um, can affect uh, people's emotional openness, especially specifically for veterans. Yeah. And when I sat down actually, and I looked at my research, I, I was listening to my interviews and, and looking at everything. And I was like, okay, I'm not finding what my original question was about how the Bay area affects mm-hmm. emotional openness uh, for veterans. And, but what I did find was, that a lot of the veterans, my interlocutors, were talking about institutions. They were talking about work. They were talking about family. And mostly they were talking about the VA. And so that kind of led me to speaking with uh, Professor Nakamura, who is also my, my mentor. I, I said, hey, you know, I'm frustrated mm-hmm. with this. It's like, I, I feel I do have to pivot. Uh, but I feel this is what my research is telling me, is telling me about these institutions. And then that's when she started talking to me about Georgia Agabon and, and the bare life and also looking at these institutions under different lenses. And that's actually what I've, I've taken it and I've done. I've looked at these institutions at different lenses. Mm-hmm. So the social model of disability is essentially uh, that society actually disables people. That society creates barriers. Like, for instance, it's society that makes the stairs. It's not, you know, nature that makes the stairs. It's not the disabled person that makes the stairs. It's society. They create these stairs and they create the barriers to access. And that's actually a disabling factor for people that use chairs or, or even people that are, are blind or low vision because if they can't use their cane to identify the steps, they're not going to know it's there. They're going to trip over. If you're using a wheelchair, you're going to get to it and you're not going to be able to get into the building. 
And that's where the social moral right. disability comes in at. With, uh, with bare life, essentially, it, it boils down to really having little to no power. Like in, in a, mm-hmm. when it comes to a different setting, uh, an institutional setting is specifically what I'm looking at it as. Um, for instance, when you deal with the VA, uh, you really have little to no power. Like, like they say you have power, but it's the illusion of power. Like for instance, recently a, and a good example would be of when, so as a, as a hundred percent disabled veteran, I do have a thing where I can discharge my student loans. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's something that's known in the veteran community. However, Trump, President Trump signed a executive order changing this in uh, July. Mm-hmm. He basically made it so that the VA and the Department of Education would share information. Now, I feel this is HIPAA information. Uh, they shared our disability statuses. They shared our social security number, which are all things that are not supposed to be shared. Mm-hmm. And the VA often tells you, like, they will not share your information without your consent. Well, all of our information was shared without our consent. Um, and unfortunately, um, this, the VA has a bad reputation of doing that, mm-hmm. of sharing information without consent or doing things without your consent. Um, and that's where it boils down to. And it ended up, uh, the, the process ended up discharging a lot of people's loans, which some people could look at as good things. However, for a lot of veterans that are still in school, that barred a lot of us from getting new loans mm-hmm. and everything from being able to continue in school. So a lot of us had to appeal the process and it was just this huge headache. Mm-hmm. And it was just one of those things where lawyers had to get involved and it was just a big issue. Right. Um, uh, another good example would be if, if you're not taking your medication with the VA, uh, they make sure you're taking your medication. They will blood test you. They will do your analysis. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you may try to get around it and say, oh, well, yeah, I take my medication. And the doctor will be like, no, you don't. You didn't. And it'll threaten to take your, your benefits away. And, you know, so that's some examples that I use uh, for bare life specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, when combined with Professor Charles Briggs's example of unsanitary citizen, unsanitary citizen in this term is basically the nation state is, or institution is not recognizing the rights of these people and, and recognizing them. Essentially, they're not even recognizing them as like citizens, really. And I feel a lot of times when it comes to institutions, especially specifically like the VA, they choose not to recognize us as, as citizens and choose not to take care of us. And that becomes a big issue. And that's why, like I said, I had to combine the two to really mm-hmm. feel out and get the, the proper terminology. Yeah. When shifting over in relations to the American workplace, like I said, I use a Marxist theory, relations to production. And this is the relationships that individuals are forced to develop to survive within a capitalist-driven society and to produce and reproduce their means. So essentially, a lot of the times, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of um, different nonprofits and government um, organizations that have, they, they say, you know, oh, well, you should get help or, or whatever effort to a veteran. Right. And so a veteran will go and get help. But a lot of times, these are work programs. A lot of these times, it's, it's all in relation to going back to work, to making the veteran become a producer and a consumer again. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's essentially what it is. It's not so much becoming a good producer. It's just becoming a producer. It's going back on the assembly line, essentially. Whether they're hurt, whether they're injured, it doesn't matter. And that crosses over into uh, the realm of the family institution. And 
as I said, I'm using a feminist theory, specifically gender identity, and a focus on identity and difference-centered analysis on social categories such as age, occupation, religious status, and so on. But I'm specifically using this in the terms of looking at the gender roles that we have, like especially in the U.S., we are really specific about our gender roles. Like that's a huge thing for you know a man's a husband, a woman is a wife, right? right? And this is a very big thing that we focus on here in the states. And uh, and that dates back really far back. Do you yes. think it's changed at all? Like at least in in recent decades, or not really? I think it's changed some, but. To a larger degree, I don't think it has. And that's, that's something mm-hmm. that I definitely want to focus in on the future. I want to look at um, the lives of trans vets and queer vets. And that's going to be one of the big things I'm going to be shifting over to in my graduate studies. Mm-hmm. But it's like, like I was saying, like with the gender roles, though, it's like um, if you cannot function as a man, you know, as, as American society sees it, like you can't go mow the lawn, you can't go build something, right? You can't go work on the cars because of your disabilities, right? Are you still a man? Or mm-hmm. if you're a woman and you're a female veteran, or, you know, in this case, and you're a, a mother and you can't connect to your child because of your trauma, mm-hmm. are you still a mom, right? And that's why I want to look at these things because these, I feel these things really, uh, impact uh, you know, our identities, specifically for veterans, it, it really is. And, it, and when we combine all of these things, you know, it's like the way I imagine it is like, like a couple of walls, like the walls surround us. And in the States, uh, we, we've been having this real big issue with uh, a lot of veteran suicides. Each institution is adding their own pressure to, to, the, to the veteran if they're sitting inside this box. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the you know, it, it's in their last grasp a lot of times to retake control. Oftentimes they end up taking their lives and that's the unfortunate uh, part. Mm-hmm. And that's one big reason about my research because I've had a lot of buddies. Yeah. You know, I've lost a lot of buddies on deployments, um, you know, killed in action and whatnot, but I've had, unfortunately I've had more commit suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been on four deployments um, throughout my military career and that's four years overseas. Um, and like I said, I've, I've lost buddies, but I've lost way more to suicide. And it, it's just a really unfortunate thing. And that's a really disturbing trend that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And I feel that these institutions, they are, may not be the only institutions to blame, but I feel these are, these are the institutions to start looking at. Right. Like the effects are actually quite, um, you know, serious and also long lasting as well. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the big things of why I'm looking at uh, these veterans, like, like a lot of work by uh, Zoe Wool and, and Kenneth McLeish has been really awesome. But a lot of their stuff I feel also looks at, uh, at the beginning of, uh, you know, of them becoming veterans, like right after they're transitioning out of the service often. Like they're looking at a lot of stuff like immediately right after, and I'm looking at stuff years later after the fact, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I feel that that's a very important time. Do you have uh, many colleagues in uh, Berkeley and uh, elsewhere around the world that you're able to, that you have common interests in veterans health, you know, together with, are you able to talk about these ideas about these institutions and uh, disabling effects of society, like together with, and, you know, exchange ideas about, about these um, topics? Yes and no. Like, unfortunately, there's not too many anthropologists that are studying veterans health. But like I said, like, like I've spoken with professors Zoe Wool and Kenneth McLeish, who congratulations, Zoe, on uh, getting uh, the new job at University of Toronto. I saw that on Twitter the other day, so shout out. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
yes, uh, they, they both also work uh, normally specifically looking at uh, different issues with veterans and military members. Um, and I've been in contact with both of them and it's been, I feel a very good relationship and, uh, you know, we've bounced ideas off of each other and, you know, to some of the stuff blows my mind. Um, I've been able to, to work with, uh, some of the professors at UC Berkeley, like specifically, uh, professor Karen Nakamura, mm-hmm. uh, professor Corey Hayden and, and professor Charles Briggs and professor Lori Wilkie, uh, just to name a few. And they've, they've all been able to help me quite a bit and, and foster this research. And so, you know, I'll come to them with this idea or I'll say, Hey, what do you think about this? Or, or that, and they've been been very forthcoming and, and very helpful um, with with all of with all the information. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, you know, stuff that comes with disability identity. Um, you know, Professor Nakamura has been helping me a lot with that. Um, when it comes to the Marxist theory, like Professor Hayden has been helping me a lot with that. Would you be able to explain a little bit more about the Marxist theory that you mentioned? Yeah. So specifically, like I said, it's the Marxist theory in relation to production, and uh, essentially, it's this relationship that individuals are forced to develop to survive within the capitalist-driven society and to produce and reproduce a means. Like a lot of uh, a lot of job or a lot of v, uh, veterans programs are job focused. Like there's a lot of non-profit, non-profit and institutional programs, but a lot of them are jobs focused and getting the, the focus of the getting the veteran back to work. However, that's the thing is though, when we go back to work, how do we, how are we supposed to go get help? Like, like people tell us, right? The people will say, Hey, go get help. Go, go do this, go do that. But how can you go get help when you have to work? Right. If, if in the States here, if you're working most, most jobs, it's like, you might have, seven days of sick leave, right? Which is essentially what, like 56 hours of sick leave. Sick leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing though, is that if you have a therapy session that is one hour, you, you could go, I suppose, for one hour a week for 52 weeks, and then you would have four hours left over, right? However, if you have to commute, because not many people just have a, a therapist office that sits right next door, uh, specifically for vets. Normally, we have to go to the veteran centers mm-hmm. or the VA. Um, those can be a half hour to an hour away. So now you're taking out more of your sick time mm-hmm. or more of your, you know, you're not normally been able to go right after your lunch break or right before or after work. Mm-hmm. And so now, you know, cut that time down to maybe 30 visits a year mm-hmm. out, of, out of 52 weeks. You know, so that, that creates bigger problems because now with that relations to production, you can't even really go get help. You can't go get the help that everybody's wanting you to get. Right. Right. Which that connects back to the other institutions where you have the VA that says, oh, well, we can't, we can't see you this week. You have to wait three or four months. By the time that three or four months rolls around, your boss says, you can't go to your appointment. You don't have time to go to your appointment. Mm-hmm. Then your family is telling you, oh, well, you need to go. You need to go mm-hmm. get help. You need to go do this. You need to go do that. But I've tried to get help. I've tried to go. I've tried to rearrange my, my schedule, boss. I can't go. Mm-hmm. Right. And so th- that's where it comes in. And that's how that impacts and disables the veteran. And lastly, like I said, with the institutions, they create these walls, these barriers, and, and they create this pressure onto the veteran where like their last resort is to try to take control and end up you know committing suicide yeah yeah and it's it's just uh, you know very stressful having to deal with all of these uh, out, outside influences and also these barriers right what are the biggest misunderstandings do you think about veteran health and uh, mental well-being do you think that um, I, I guess you know not not knowing that this is actually a problem that vets face is one of them right I would say yes um, so a big issue that, that I feel that a lot of veterans face 
uh, especially when it comes with this, this is not just the mental health stigma, especially in the United States, like the mental health stigma is like a big thing mm -hmm. here. And, you know, we're, we're starting to talk about it a little bit more, but let's face it, it's still light years behind, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and the big problem that I see it is a lot of times veterans problems are seen as veteran problems. Like, like some of them might hear about that, like, oh, that's a shame that veteran killed themselves, whatever. But a lot of people leave it as, is, oh, well, it's a veteran problem. You know, it's, it's for the VA to fix. Right. But that's the thing, though, right, is that the VA relies on numbers. So if, if veterans were to magically get better, all of a sudden they would lose their numbers because it's an institutionally funded thing. So it's, it's funded. It's funded by its numbers. If it numbers drops, it loses funding, mm -hmm. right? Which, you know, I mean, maybe that's why the VA, you know, the VA and the Department of Defense have paid over $4.5 billion over the last, you know, in the last decade for a lot of prescription drugs that civilian doctors mm -hmm. would not prescribe. And because of their, because often the medications that they're prescribing have shown to have really bad side effects or the, or it's been shown not to work on things for, for either mental health or, or chronic illness or chronic pain. And, um, but they the VA still prescribes it, mm -hmm. you know? So that's, that's one of those big things. And we got to wonder why, why are they still prescribing these medications that many civilian doctors wouldn't mm -hmm. prescribe? Do you think in conversations in larger society or in politics, medical health professionals, do you think that there is a good awareness of the connection between uh, physical disability or physical health and mental disability and mental health? Uh, unfortunately, I do not think there is. Um, that's one big thing that I do look at also is, is that mind-body connection. A lot of times we pick and choose what disabilities are looked at mm -hmm. that can be pitied or infantized. Mm -hmm. You know, like ones I'd be like, oh, we feel sorry for you. Where other ones oftentimes like things like PTSD, ADHD, a lot of mental health illnesses were looked at as, oh, get over it. Right. You know, that's, that's what a lot of answers are. It's like, oh, you have PTSD, get over it, right? Or some people don't even believe PTSD exists. You know, that's, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there about it mm -hmm. and misunderstanding. And a lot of times they're just said, get over it, or they'll grow out of it, or they'll get over it, you know, or here, just take this pill and it'll go away or something. And unfortunately, there's this type of, stigma related to to mental illness mm -hmm. regardless of what it is whether it's bipolar whether it's schizophrenia a lot of times it's just seen as um just it's just seen as not the same as a lot of other disabilities a lot of other disabilities are are oftentimes you know kind of like pitied right like mm -hmm. uh like if you see someone might see me using my power scooter or my power wheelchair and someone might say oh you know poor thing but if they were to see me before I had these equipment, even with my PTSD, would they think the same thing? Right. You know, oftentimes it's thought of as, oh, especially in veterans cases, it's thought of, oh, they did it to themselves. It's their own fault. Mm -hmm. You know. To what extent are, uh, do you think that veterans are able to also support each other then? Like given all of these like external stresses and barriers, institutions impacting the, the pressure that's put on them, as well as maybe like a lot of misunderstanding and, you know, ignorance uh, on the part of uh, other people. Do you think that veterans have good support networks and how do you, how do you guys navigate that together? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would like to say that veterans think they have good support networks within each other, but oftentimes veterans support 
can also be very toxic. Mm. Um, we put our trauma in a hierarchy or like a hierarchical based level. Like for instance, oh, I went through this, so my trauma is worse than yours. And oftentimes we will invalidate each other's trauma. And it's something I've seen time and time again. And I've, and I've been through some, some harrowing and traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you know, people won't question that because I've been through those experiences and I had the proof. However, if it was somebody that said, oh, well, you know, I was on a base and it got mortared or rocketed or I was an admin person, you know, because we have so many different jobs in the military, but oftentimes we, we trivialize and we invalidate other people's experiences based on, oh, they, they were an admin person or, or they, were a, uh, mm. they were on a base and they got mortared or rocketed. Right. right? But there was still like, you know, service-related uh, injury that was inflicted right. on their spirit. Exactly, exactly. But oftentimes other veterans will discount these experiences. And so it's, it's really difficult to say. Sometimes the, the veterans can be very supportive of each other and other times they can tear each other down just as bad as as an outsider can and it's it's really unfortunate Mm -hmm. and it's something i've seen happen time and again it's something i've even participated in before when i didn't realize i was doing when i didn't have the cultural reflexivity to to understand what i was doing Mm -hmm. and and now that i do i i observe it quite often and it's it's very disturbing um you know this cult this idea of cultural relativism or uh cultural reflexivity uh to what extent um, and, and you don't have to answer this if this doesn't make sense, yeah. but to what extent do you think that, you know, pursuing anthropology as a major and then also doing a PhD in, in uh, medical anthropology, does that sort of help you uh, understand and make sense of some of the things that you've seen in your life, uh, some of the conversations that you've had? Is is it sort of, is it motivated by that too? Um, is the pursuit of anthropology also motivated by that? Yes. Um, that is an amazing question. And yes, I would say so. You know, when I, when I retired in 2016 from, from my civilian job, I, I thought I wanted to do sociology because um, I, I really found that I enjoyed, you know, studying people. Um, and mm-hmm. I, so I went back to school and, and like most folks, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a brown kid from, from, you know, a not, not a very well established neighborhood. And so for me, I didn't really know anything about anthropology. I had no idea of his existence. Um, mm-hmm. But I knew I enjoyed studying people. And a lot of that I, I got from the military because um, back, and I know this is a very polarizing thing for a lot of people, but the Human Terrain Project um, was around when I was in the military. And I actually learned quite a bit and actually developed and fostered a love for anthropology. I just didn't know what it was. What was that event? Um, Oh, the human terrain project. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the human terrain project was actually a very, from what I understand it was a, the human terrain system. It was a very polarizing thing for a lot of the anthropology community. And from my understanding, it was created by Mitzi Carlo and Montgomery McFate and some, some other folks. And, and so for me, like the details, like there's quite a bit of information out there that I've looked at. And a lot of it was essentially like, it was created like weaponized anthropology is, is from what I understand. And it, it was essentially creating like a hearts mm-hmm. and minds or in the military, like a lot of veterans, we call it like a hearts and mind project. That's what we call it. Like, like when we, I remember when it first became implemented, it was all, Oh, hearts and mind, hearts and minds. We had to, you know, placate to the, to the masses, right? And it's it was one of those things in the masses of, of the people that we were occupying. 
And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I don't really know the ins and outs of, of the whole program. I know it was essentially supposed to save lives and, and help us create a better rapport with the people that we were occupying. And that's essentially what I feel with a lot of it. And I know a lot of anthropologists did not like this program because it was weaponized anthropology. But I do got to say that there is going to be a generation of service people, of service members in the U.S. military who are becoming anthropologists because of it. Because a lot of people in the military are from impoverished areas that have no connection with anthropology. And this was kind of like our first interaction for a lot of us. And, and for all the negatives that came along with this program, I feel there are positives. Like, and that's where I learned to develop a love for anthropology. Like I, a lot of times when I'd be out on combat patrol, I'd be the one speaking with, with the Sheik or, or other people that we may be talking to, um, you know, because I found that I was able to respect their cultures and I found it fascinating. And I would talk to them with respect and they would talk to me with respect. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those things where it, it taught us, like, hey, you know, speak to these folks with respect, you know, like ask them, treat them like a human being, you know, and that was a big thing for me. And that was a big influence on my military career is, is treating other folks like human beings, regardless of their situation. Mm-hmm. And that was just some of the things I learned from that. And I, like I said, I, I didn't participate directly in the program, but I, I know that I was taught a lot of the things from the program because it was implemented military wide. Like we had little cards and everything that would tell us, you know, oh, these are little phrases you could say, or, or this is a big part of their culture. And, mm-hmm. and so it was like, it was my first introduction to culture really. And uh, so when I went back to school, I thought I wanted to do sociology because I never had a name for it until I walked into uh, Professor Chris Mercer's class at, Di- at Diablo Valley College. And um, I walked into a magic witchcraft and anthropology class and yeah, that was it. That was it for me. I, I knew where I was and uh, mm-hmm. I found the right place. And after that, it was just, uh, <laughs> I just fell in love with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just, I soaked it up. I would look up different things. You know, I would look up uh, material outside of the class because it just because I was finding it fascinating. Or I'd go to the professor and say, hey, do you have any more material? Do you, you know, just, just like I was just thirsty and I couldn't get enough. It sounds really wonderful. You know? Anthropology was able to sort of provide you with the frameworks and the tools to um, make sense of the world around you and, you know, your own lived experience at the time. Going the other way, like if we flip it around, I'm curious to know whether you think that um, having served in the military for so many years, do you think that in any way that that makes you a better anthropologist now? What impact do you hope that, you know, your, your, your research in this makerspace on uh, disability will, like, how do you think that that will be improved because of your experience in the military? So my experiences of the military, they're very colonized. I'm not going to lie about that. Like when I think about myself as a, as a veteran, in my head, I picture like a grizzled, old bearded white dude. That's like what the image is of my head because I was very colonized. However, you know, being though being able to become an anthropologist and, and learn this cultural reflexivity, I was able to learn that about myself. And I was able to reflect upon that. And it's also helped me in a lot of my therapy sessions because I've been able to sit and ask the question, why am I acting like this? Why am I frustrated? Why am I upset? Right. And be able to explore those questions. Or if I didn't have anthropology, I don't think I could do that. As far as, as the tools that I've acquired, um, from the military, I feel that in the focus of my research, specifically with veterans, it's given me a emic or insider's perspective on, 
you know, dealing and, and working with other vets, you know, and being able to sit there and be like, okay, I understand why they're acting like this, or I understand what they're saying about that. And it gives me like when they're, when they're speaking in, in, uh, military terms, you know, I, I understand like what they're saying, you know, I don't need it to be explained to me. I don't need it to be, uh, explored. I understand, you know, almost immediately exactly what they're talking about, regardless of what branch they were serving in. You know, they might say something like, in the, for instance, like the Marines call the bathroom the head and the Army calls it the latrine. But I understand that what they're saying when they're saying it's the head, you know, it's, they're talking about the bathroom. But I, I also understand when they're talking in, in, you know, oftentimes we might have our own way of saying something. Um, like we might say some, but something's a dirt bag, right? But that's actually just calling somebody like a bad word basically, you know, but, or a blue Falcon or something like that. But, but that's the thing is I understand all that terminology. I get that. And I don't need a lot of it explained to me. And I feel that also allows other veterans to open up to me because I can also share with them my experiences too. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I feel that my military training, it, it had, it's definitely had its good and it's bad. And it's definitely had a lot of things that I'm trying in therapy right now to, uh, work out, yeah. I guess you can say, but some of the things that has taught me is like how to read people. And that's why the reason I, I enjoy doing ethnographic research with people face to face, because I can sit there and I can watch their body language. I can see their expression. I can see when, you know, maybe I'm probing a little bit too deep and, and maybe why I need to back off, yeah. you know, or I can see it's like, okay, we're going on to something and it's something they're excited about, something they're talking about. And I can see, and I can read their body language mm -hmm. because that's something that uh, was drilled into me in the military was how to read body language because a lot of times it can mean life and death over uh, overseas. But also, also it taught me how to be a leader and and when to just sit and maybe not be an anthropologist and take that hat off and just be a friend and and listen, mm -hmm. you know. And that's that's some just some of the tools that the military has given me. Yeah, and then sometimes the best conversations will will come out of that when you sort of sit back and and keep your mouth shut for just a second, and then other people might open up. Yes, exactly, exactly, and that's just that's a huge thing I think because a lot of times veterans, like a lot of vulnerable populations, including veterans, are afraid to speak with researchers. Like a, a good buddy of mine, uh, Chris Moreno, like he he does a big research focus on. Um, He's, an, he's another undergrad at UC Berkeley, but he does a big research focus on like gentrified location and specifically for him is San Francisco. And him and I often talk about, you know, like, man, you know, he, he's a, he's a Latinx person myself. I'm a Pacific Islander. And it's one of those things where we talk about where academia, if we were to go and speak academic, you know, like, and say like something like the way in which or, or whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, to, to some of our interlocutors, they'd be like, dude, get out of here. You know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's having that cultural reflexivity. It helps understand that. Uh, but that's just something that, you know, helps us, I, I feel, and at least helps me particularly to, to help learn to read my, read my interlocutors and read my audience and be like, okay, maybe I need to use a different type of language. Oftentimes I feel uh, academia, especially the language of academia can alienate folks, especially our interlocutors. Yeah. And a, one of my mentors, Professor Jasper Santa, who he, you know, he taught me, like he, I remember one day he told me, he's like, cause I asked him, I was like, well, what do you think about academic language? He's like, honestly, he's like, I wish they would have taught us to speak plainly with people, you know, and, and to write plainly. And I feel that that's a really big thing. Cause I feel that is something that is missing in academia. A lot of times, you know, academia is an interesting thing and it's a fun thing to work in, but a lot of times our language can alienate a lot of folks. And especially if you're a person of color, a lot of times when you start becoming academic, you alienate yourself 
from your people. And that includes veterans because oftentimes with vets, um, we're allowed like a certain bracket of jobs that we can go into. Mostly it's like practical jobs like, oh, you can become like an engineer or you can become an electrician or a plumber or something like that. Or you can even go and get your MBA and become some sort of a business manager, but become an anthropologist, become a researcher, you know, God forbid, you know, that's like a big thing. Like, cause a lot of times, you know, veterans and other, you know, like I said, veterans and other vulnerable populations don't like speaking with researchers. That just, you know, raises a red flag for a lot of them because of the past, yeah. you know, that we've had with researchers. So that's, that's like one of the big things that we've noticed, you know, mm-hmm things that we're trying to do to, to change yeah. things, you know? I can't understand completely, but just to pick up on something that you said, I do think that in all my training, of course, I learned a lot of scientific jargon and the language of academia. And in more recent years, when you reach, to reach the end of a PhD and you're trying to think about what it all means and why did you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I go home and then uh, my family are very interested in what I've just accomplished. And I actually find that I don't have the right language to tell them. Like, I don't even have it in the right language. Um, as in, like, I can't even speak Cantonese. I don't even know how to say Neolithic in Cantonese or, wow. um, you know, some part of the skeleton. I don't know all the names of the bones in uh, my own language, let alone, you know, talking about evolutionary concepts or um, archaeological theory. Like, I just don't have the vocab. And of course, um, language is power. So, I, you know, I don't just not have the vocab, but I also don't have a shared worldview with my family yes. and, and my friends back Yes, home. exactly. Yeah. And if we're talking about like language here, and I think about it all the time, because of course, uh, on this podcast, an audio medium, it's all about, uh, you know, language. And uh, do you think that there's anything interesting to say about the language surrounding disability in public conversations? You know, lately I feel in the in the last few years, especially, there is this term that a lot of people use, which is you know political correctness, and trying to avoid terms that might be uh, ableist and offensive and demeaning. Have you seen that change over your life? Yes, uh, I, I definitely have, and and you're 100 percent right you know, words have power. And I also feel like you said, knowledge is power. That's, that's a huge thing. And, and just, mm-hmm. you know, just a big thing, whoever has power, you know, that creates a power differential. So you're hundred percent right. But um, yeah, as far as, as with words go, yes, words definitely have power and specifically, uh, re, re, you know, bring it back around to veterans. You know, a lot of vets I know do not identify themselves as disabled. You know, they don't even identify themselves as, as disabled veterans. Even if they have, you know, a hundred percent disability with the VA, a lot of times they won't identify themselves mm-hmm. with it. Uh, a good buddy of mine, um, who I identify as, you know, and in a way I look up to him. He has a master's and everything, and uh, he's getting ready to go for his PhD and, and all that. And really awesome vet. Um, I do yoga with him regularly. Um, but he, you know, and he has a hundred percent disability rating, but he does not identify himself as a disabled vet. And I asked him why, and he's like, I just can't do it. I can't wrap my mind around that word disabled. Right. right? And for a lot of veterans, because in, in veteran terminology, disabled means that you're broken. If you're broken, it means you're a dirtbag, Right. Um, and that's one of the big things, like a lot of times, uh, with veterans, when they go to basic training or boot camp, they're, they're taught not to go to sick hall or the, or the doctor. If they're taught, you're taught, if you do, you're a dirtbag, you're, you're a liar, right? That's essentially what it all comes back to. And that's one reason why a lot of veterans suffer in silence 
And yes, the military has tried to change a lot of that, but it takes a long time to change a culture. It's not just going to change overnight. And so that's something that still exists now. And it's something that I had a hard time identifying with, essentially. I, honestly, it all, you know, I almost ended my life over it uh, years ago because I couldn't wrap my mind around being disabled. And until I could accept that I was disabled, I was really on that edge for a long time. And, um, and so the words have power, the power, the words we choose have power. And with disabled folks, a lot of times what I've noticed is, you know, like some people might not want to call blind people blind, but it's like a lot of blind folks I know are just like, no, dude, I'm blind. I don't, you know, they, they would rather have, um, you know, disability first language. A lot of times I know, like if you call like somebody an autistic person, they would rather be called an autistic person than a person with autism. Because the reason being is because a part of their identity is a part of that disability. And so it's like, hey, look, when you, when you put the identity first language, you know, it, it kind of, they feel it's like you're, you're forgetting that part of their identity. And that's why a lot of them are like, hey, look, I'm autistic or I'm blind for me. I'm like, hey, I'm a disabled veteran. I am disabled. I identify as a disabled veteran and I am disabled. It's okay to call me disabled. And a lot of times people will, will say, oh, well, don't infantize me or don't discount my experiences. And a lot of times it all goes back yeah. to that. And that's so important to recognize as well, because we should be able to uh, try and make space for people who want to you know, have a certain claim and certain like control and certain ownership over their own identity. And the best thing to do is try and be respectful of that. Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's, that's where I find academia to be a very interesting place. Like I've, I found great support, um, you know, with academia uh, at UC Berkeley, um, you know, but I've heard a lot of horror stories from a lot of other students. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, at the UC Berkeley Disability Lab, we're trying to stop. Like, like when we've had our own problems at UC Berkeley, you know, like we've had programs get cut and we've had to fight for them back, but we've had great faculty backing us up, mm -hmm. you know, as, as students. And, but that's the thing is I hear a lot of scary stories from a lot of other disabled students and grad students you know, who are, whose disabilities are not being observed and, and their, um, you know, their accommodations are not being observed. And it's, it's just really heartbreaking because some of these students are really amazing students and would be amazing, uh, you know, professors one day. However, a lot of them, like the grad students will master out instead because they're like, well, I can't, I can't do this. Or my, you know, my advisor is not listening to me when I'm saying my, my disabilities are flaring up or they're having issues. And there's a big unfortunate thing that I've noticed in academia. Like I just, I've talked to too many grad students who have been impacted by it. Uh, you mentioned like your, your students and I was thinking about like uh, the younger generation and the generations to come. Um, I also know that you're, you're a father as well. Yes. Do you think about the world that you're, you know, that they're growing up in and what do you hope would be improved and can be worked on going forward for future generations in terms of anthropology, but also disability studies and disability rights, visibility of disability and uh, veterans as well? Okay, so that's definitely quite a bit. Um, I'll have to do it piece by piece because all of those things I feel are important. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start off with being a disabled parent. Um, so my, my oldest son, you know, he's, he's autistic and um, that's one of the big things I'm trying to prepare him for is, is what this world's like and what this world's going to look like. And he's in eighth grade getting ready to go to high school. Uh, hi, Xavier, if you're listening. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> cause he actually wants to be a cultural anthropologist when he grows up. That is so cool. And, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I know. It blew me away when he said, I want to go be a cultural anthropologist. So I was like, all right, dude. Yeah, definitely. You know, and he, he just wants to go and travel and he wants to study other cultures and he's just fascinated by them. And I'm like, dude, you know, it blows me away. But it also terrifies me too, because I know what this world looks like for disabled folks. And this is why in uh, 2019, last year, I went with Ella Callow, who's the ADA compliance officer at UC Berkeley, and some other disabled folks. We went to uh, Washington, D.C., and we uh, spoke before Congress about trying to uh, get rid of a lot of old eugenic laws that are still on the books. Like, do you, I don't know if, if y'all know, but a lot of times all it takes for someone to take your child in 30 some odd states is the fact that you're disabled. Like a uh, quick story. Um, a woman about like, it was about two weeks before I went to DC to testify in front of Congress about this, but a, a woman had her children taken because she was paraplegic mm-hmm. and the judge decided, Oh, because someone saw her kids doing something. Um, and the, the, someone reported to the judge and the judge was like, Oh, well, you know, she must be having them be her caretakers. And so the judge took the children from her and gave them to their father who they had no relationship with. Mm -hmm. The only thing is though, she was just having to do chores that any able-bodied parent would have them do. Actually like five minutes before I testified before Congress, I was told by a good buddy of mine, um, that an autistic woman had her kids taken away. No, like no more than five minutes before I, I went and presented in front of Congress. And I was just blown away by it. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, out of, out of 30-something states, including California, that's really all it takes to have your kids taken away when you're disabled. Is It's just that you just have a disability. Like uh, my ex-wife used my disabilities against me in our court battle uh, for, for custody of my son. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, a very harrowing experience. It took me over a decade to get custody of him, but she used my PTSD and my other disabilities against me Mm -hmm. a lot of times. And, you know, when I was in there and before the judge, the judge just looked at me like I was this big dirtbag just for being a veteran and having PTSD. And I was just like, man, like I just, you know, I just felt so small, you know? And, and that was really one of those things where it was like, yeah, yeah, I felt like he was lucky. I, you know, I'm lucky he didn't throw the book at me or something. I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy. And so that's one reason why I went and testified. But I feel it's very important. And we've made some leeway. You know, Congress listened to us and we've made some leeway, but it's not enacted yet. And we're, you know, it's, it's in the drafts and whatnot to get rid of a lot of those, those old eugenic laws, but they need to be gone, you know, because I definitely fear for, for my son. I, I fear for, you know, what what can happen you know for him because he's like i said he's autistic he's you know it's something he's going to deal with and i i worry like what the future holds for him if he decides mm-hmm. to have a family one day and then someday maybe the, some judge decides to take his kids away you know mm-hmm. and so i fear for him i fear for other disabled folks you know that that you know their children get taken away for because they're disabled it's just it's some silly stuff but it's the old eugenic laws that are still in our books that were you know, from eugenesis that what 19, 1910, 1920, when these, these clowns were, mm-hmm. were working, you know, I mean, way before that too, but they were also really primarily putting these laws in the books. Yeah. So yeah, I'd like to definitely see that get overturned. Uh, what was the, the next question? Like I said, it was some big, big questions. <laughs> big questions. Uh, well, uh, yes. just jumping off of that, like, yeah. you know, when, 
you are considering the fact that you know there there isn't really a lot of existing literature and work and projects that are kind of looking at the intersection of of all of these different things already and you are in a unique position you know in many ways to have had all your life experiences and also have broad interests and you kind of want to bring them together and synthesize them how does that make you feel like going forward and 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 you know what still needs to be looked at how does that make you feel personally, like going, looking towards the future, tackling these questions? You know, looking towards the future and tackling these questions, like I said, like when I go to grad school, I would definitely like to look at the experiences of, of trans vets and queer vets, specifically now, uh, how, uh, like when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, uh, you know, taken away uh, back in, I want to say it was 2013, mm-hmm. 2012, 2013, uh, when President Obama took that away. I know a lot of queer and trans vets that were terrified of it. And now with Trump in office, I see why they were terrified of it because a lot of them were put out of the military. A lot of trans vets were put out of the military because of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to get their experiences and I want to get their stories because I feel these are very important to capture. I also want to speak with deported vets that have been deported over, you know, with this administration uh, and, and beyond. I want to get their experiences and their stories because, you know, there, there are no uh, VA facilities uh, you know, really, there's only a few outside the U.S. and I believe there's the only one is in the Philippines. So it's like, you know, what are these people's stories? How are they getting access? You know, where are they getting access and how is this disabling them? Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel it's very important because like I said, there's not a lot of work here being done. I, I do know quite a bit of vets that are um, starting to um, open up and look into this type of research themselves. Um, but there's not enough of us, you know, there's, there's only less than a handful of, of vets looking at this and, and, you know, maybe a handful, maybe a little bit more of, of, uh, people that are not vets are looking outside this. So I feel, you know, it's very important. It's very critical work that needs to be done. And that's why I I really believe in it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And I imagine that like, you know, I think that as always with any significant political or social movements, it, it does really require a collective effort. And so a lot of the time, you know, at least in the beginning stages, it will be about building that capacity and building that network so that there is cross the threshold, various thresholds ahead of you, and then you're going to be able to overcome them as a group. Yes. Uh, and actually implement some some actions that will benefit people and, and actually significantly change things. Yes, and I do have some projects in mind, uh, specifically one that I have an idea for. Um, but as of right now, I'm, I'm keeping that under my hat until I get it implemented. But <laughs> the good thing is I do have housing for a pilot project. And let's just say it has to deal with acting and and uh, getting some, some emotions out and... Uh, you know, eliciting some healing. That's very good. Um, so that's like a, yeah, that's like, that's just a little bit, a little bit of a preview and hopefully in a few years I can tell you more and, and everything. But the good thing is I do have housing for a pilot program mm-hmm. for that and counselors that have volunteered for it. That's excellent. So I'm very excited. Uh, another thing that I'm currently looking at is also how the veterans disable family. And because unfortunately trauma is a double-edged sword and those folks around trauma are also being traumatized by the person that's already traumatized and it creates a double-edged sword and creates an impact and hinders families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so everybody in a family uh, probably needs research on and uh, with as well, yes. collaborating with them so that we can listen to families more holistically and help everybody that is uh, affected. Yes. 
Exactly. Exactly. And that's a huge thing because unfortunately, like, like, you know, therapists and counselors are not available for family members oftentimes. Like if you, like some places may allow it, some may don't. And that's the thing is that it should be access to everyone. And also, like I was saying, like a hierarchical issues is that um, oftentimes, like if you're a combat vet, you have more resources available to you if you're just then rather than if you were just a vet, like if you weren't deployed to a combat area, you have limited resources in comparison to somebody that has been deployed and you have more resources if you've Mm -hmm. been deployed. So it's just, like I said, it's very hierarchical and we, we, you know, relate that trauma to that hierarchy and it's just really, uh, that's the big impact. Right. So if people want to follow all of this work that you're doing or ask you any questions after this interview, can they find you somewhere online? Yes. Yes, of course. Uh, you can definitely find me on, uh, Twitter. Um, uh, you can find me at, at, Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N-A-T-H-O-N-Y-82. Um, don't ask me why I spilt, misspelt my name. I think it was just one of those days I wasn't paying attention <laughs> and I fat-fingered it. And, and Twitter will let me change it, so it's too late now. Um, you know, you can also find me at the Disability Lab. And our, our website is uh, yeah disability.jp slash madlab. Uh, that, that is our, our site. And you can also email me at uh, Nathan. Tilton, N-A-T-H-A-N-T-I-L-T-O-N, mm-hmm. 82 at berkeley.edu. Um, you know, and, and reach out to me if you like. Um, you know, if you're interested in, in the lab or would like to learn more, you know, we're always willing to talk with uh, people outside, uh, you know, UC Berkeley. And, of course, if you're a disabled person and, you know, you're looking for a makerspace, well, hey, we're here for you, you know, and we would love to hear your ideas or, or anything you know, that's just a big thing yeah. that we do. And, and we definitely try to make everything open source too. That's a big thing also is whatever we publish, we try to make it open source. That's also. great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, because you've listened to some episodes before, you know that we do a hashtag. Um, is there a hashtag that we can sort of like uh, use to sort of wrap this up well? And yes, yeah. um, I'll definitely say two things. So hashtag no more vibrating devices. That's something that's a kind of an inside joke with our lab. So, and we also say like the number two, uh, essentially, basically disabled folks, and this is for the, the designers out there, listen to your people, listen to your target population that you want to work with. If you want to work with disabled people, speak to disabled people. Don't just assume to know what they want and just go for something shiny. We don't want shiny. That's one of the big frustrating things that we've seen is, is shiny something. All the time someone comes up with something shiny and it's like, oh, this is such cool technology, and disabled people finally get it, and they're like, this is trash. I don't want this. You know, <laughs> it's like, and that's like a big thing. It's like we don't need ableist saviors. We need people that want to work with us to help us create and design things to give us agency. Um, secondly, for for vets, you know, hashtag twenty two a day. Um, you know, definitely, if you need help, please reach out. Um, you know, even if you're not a vet, please reach out to to somebody or, or call the suicide hotline or, or someone else. If you're feeling the need that, you know, if you're feeling that, um, that you're having trouble with that, reach out, you know, somebody's always there to listen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and always just be kind to yourself. So listeners, if you want to let Nate and I know that you listen to the episode, then tell us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, and Instagram. Uh, we are at Arcananth pod. You can also go to our patron page if you liked this episode and like the podcast in general and don't support it already um, a bit financially every month 
then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod and find out the options for doing so. Uh, a little bit of contribution from you listeners really helps me out to cover server costs and other software uh, subscriptions that I use for editing the show. And so I can continue to produce this podcast. Find new episodes of the show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts, as well as arcananth.com, where I will also be including a bunch of links to Nate's work as well. Nate, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Yes, thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure and a joy, and I hope to be able to speak with you again in the future. If not, I'll see you in the Twitterverse, huh? <laughs> of course, of course, you can come back on the show uh, in, in the future anytime you want. Okay, awesome. listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening.